Well, we are going to be looking at the letter to the church at Smyrna today uh, in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Uh, like the other letters to the seven churches, this one addresses a particular church in their uh, then present day situation, but it also speaks to one of the varieties of churches and Christians that are still found in the world today. And it applies to us in that it teaches us, even though we are not yet facing persecution, it teaches us how to go through it when or if it comes. Uh, the church in Smyrna was the materially poorest and weakest of the seven churches, uh, may also have been the smallest, it is definitely the church under the most severe persecution. Uh, most likely that is due to the fact that Smyrna was an aggressive proselytizing center for worship of the emperor. Uh, there was a competition held among Roman cities for who would be the center of a new temple for emperor worship. And Smyrna was the winner because they did, outdid all of the other cities of the ancient Roman Empire in their zeal for worshiping the emperor. In addition, by the way, to all kinds of other gods and goddesses of various things. But the worship of the emperor was held to be the supreme act not only of religious, but also civic devotion. You know, it's hard for us to, to imagine, but, but back then, there was this idea that whoever was the head of government was the emblem not only of the, the state, but also the head of all of the religious activity that went on within the empire. There was a union of church and state. In fact, one of the titles that was traditionally given to the Roman emperor was this one, Pontifex Maximus, chief priest. Chief priest. And so to be someone who would not offer worship to the emperor is not simply to have a religious disagreement, it is to be a bad citizen. And this church is full of people who will not bow down in worship before Caesar. They will pay their taxes. They will grant him honor as he is due as the leader of the empire. They will submit to his authority and the laws that he passes. But I will not say... Caesar is Lord in the same way that Jesus is Lord. I won't do it. Probably the closest that we've ever gotten in contemporary history to this kind of worship of the leader of the state is in the fascist movements of the 1920s and 30s and 40s where you had Mussolini who was called Il Duce. Right, And you had Adolf Hitler, who was the Fuhrer, right? 
who viewed himself as a second coming of Caesar, as the leader, not only of the nation, but also of all the religious activity therein. And so anybody who would not bow before Hitler and say, Heil Hitler, was not only a bad citizen, but also someone who refused to give him honor as a semi-divine figure. Or over in Japan, the emperor Hirohito was worshipped as a god. And so you could not surrender because you would be disloyal, not just to the ruler, but to, your, to the god of your nation. That's a scary thing. And these people, this church at Smyrna, were people who would not bow before the emperor. They would not even burn a pinch of incense once a year in his temple. That was the minimum required. They wouldn't do it, and they wouldn't pay someone to do it for them. You could have that done, too. If you didn't want to do it, you could pay somebody else to do it. They'd give you a certificate that, did it, that they had done it on your behalf, and you could carry it with you. And if anybody questioned you, you could say, No, I, I did it. I got, I got uh, you know, Larry to do it for me. I took care of my responsibility. They wouldn't do it. And so they're a persecuted church. And this is a letter for people who are part of a persecuted church. People who are regarded not simply as different religiously, but as bad citizens, as people to be hunted down and driven out. So I want to look at this letter with you. Before I do, I want to pray, and then we'll read God's Word together. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it speaks to us, not simply to Your people in the time in which it was written, but it speaks to us with living words today because your Holy Spirit is alive and he enlivens the words on the page in our hearts and shows us how they are relevant and still apply to us even now. Father, I pray that you would speak uh, through your word to us all today and that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. We pray. Amen. Beginning verse 8, chapter 2, Revelation. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. That's the letter. Short, sweet, to the point. 
Uh, this, this letter divides into two sections. The first is verses 8 through 10, which is Jesus' encouragement to this church to be fearlessly faithful, facing persecution and death. And if you look closely at verse 8, you need to notice how Jesus describes himself. You'll see that he says he is the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, all of these intro descriptions that Jesus gives in every one of these letters are a reference back to John's vision of Jesus and Jesus' self-description, self-revelation in chapter 1. And every one of these descriptions is custom-picked for the church that he addresses it to. Because it is something that he is, there's something in the letter that follows that he is trying to remind them of. This church in Smyrna is facing down persecution due to the fact that they will not bow before the emperor Domitian in worship. When the Praetorian Guard made Domitian emperor, they gave him titles. They called, they referred to him not simply as Emperor Domitian, but they called him Domitian Augustus. It's Latin, and it means the majestic one. The majestic one. It's a divine title. They said he's the majestic one. He is pater patriae. He is father of the fatherland. He is the father of all of these people in the Roman Empire. He's the father to whom everyone in the Roman Empire needs to look and submit. He is also the Pontifex Maximus. He's the chief priest. Now, if you know your Bible, you know that these titles that are given to the Roman Empire cut directly cross-grain with Christianity. Amen? Because who is the chief priest? Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Who is the majestic one? God and God alone. Who is the Father of all people? It is not Muppet Newsflash. It is not whoever happens to rule in Rome. Amen? It is not that guy. And by the way, the Father of all people doesn't rule in Washington either, or in Brussels, or in Munich, or in any other city around the world. He dwells in heaven. Reminds me of, uh, they say that one of the only times that Muhammad Ali was ever bested in rhetoric was by a stewardess, okay? Uh, he was getting on an airplane, and, and he, he, uh, he referred to himself as Superman. And, uh, and, and the stewardess came by, and she said, Sir, you're going to have to buckle your seatbelt. And Ali looked at her and he said, just shook his head. She said, she came by a little later, sir, you're going to have to buckle your seatbelt. And he didn't buckle it. Came by a third time, sir, I'm telling you for the last time, you do not buckle your seatbelt, the plane cannot take off. 
And he looked up at her and he said, Honey, you got to know I'm Superman. Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she looked back at him and she said, Sir, if you were Superman, you would need no plane. Buckle up. <laughs> okay. He buckled up. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but he, do you see, that is what the Roman emperor is doing. He is claiming for himself things which only God can fulfill. He's accepting titles that don't belong to him. And his titles exist in direct challenge to a Christian's faith. In reality, this guy was a bald-headed, spindly-legged, pot-bellied, two-bit tyrant. And he did not hold a candle to the Lord of all creation. He is not the King of Kings. And so there's encouragement in the first verse of this letter and that he is, Jesus is reminding them who the real first and the last is. And it isn't the emperor. And he's also reminding them that he is the one who died and rose again. Guess what happened to Domitian? He died and no one knows where he's buried. But he's still dead. He's still dead. And that is important that he is the one who died and rose again. Because word of encouragement, if he died and rose again, that is meant to remind them that if they die, what will happen to them? That they will likewise rise again, just like Jesus. You get a commendation in verse 9. He tells them he knows about their poverty and about the slander they suffer. He says, you are poor, at least in material terms. You're poor. I know about your poverty. Smyrna itself was a rich city, and the church, though, drew from people who were not, or perhaps had formerly been, but persecution had put them on the run, and they couldn't sustain their livelihood anymore and now they had become poor it's quite possible many of them were slaves but regardless all their material resources didn't add up to much but in jesus eyes their spiritual resources added up to a lot he says you are rich you're rich because you're enduring persecution and you haven't folded Though you're slandered and pressured by the whole culture around you, you haven't given in. Their faith is a great treasure and they haven't surrendered it, even though life would get easier for them if they just would do that. And it would be easy to rationalize, right? It's just a pinch of incense on a fire. You don't even have to directly do it. You can pay somebody to do it. And they will not compromise. They will not acknowledge the deity of any other being but God alone. And Jesus says that makes them rich. Jesus also bluntly describes some of their most vigorous opponents who, ironically enough, are Jewish. 
you would think that a persecuted religious minority would have some sympathy for another persecuted religious minority. He says, they say that they're Jews, but they're not because they're part of a synagogue of Satan. Can we agree that's fairly strong language? Probably gets you banned from Facebook. <laughs> All right. <laughs> if you say that, Jesus tells it with the bark on. What does Jesus mean here? I think what he means is that from his perspective, you don't count as a Jew simply because you have the right genetics. Remember what he tells the people of his day when he is ministering uh, in Jerusalem? He says, don't think that because you have Abraham for your father that you have necessarily special standing with God. I tell you the truth, God can raise up from these stones children from Abraham. Still got to repent. From God's perspective, if you're, if you're a real and authentic Jew, you not only are someone who believes in Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of God's promises made to the Jewish nation, but you don't plot against his people. And that's what they're doing. This echoes what Paul said in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. And by the way, this is not a blanket condemnation of all Jewish people. Remember, the gospel is, in, in fact, for the Jew first, and also for us Gentiles. But Jesus does condemn, condemn these particular Jews for their lack of faith in him and their slander against those who have embraced him. One of the charges that was made against Christians in the early centuries is that we were atheists. You know why? Because we worshipped a God that they had no statues of. You worship a God you can't see, you must not really worship God. So you're an atheist. That's what we were called, the atheists. Because we worshiped a God that was unseen. And Jesus says that these folks slander his people. By the way, does this kind of thing still happen? Does this kind of thing still happen? Yes. In places all over the world. Christians are accused of being bad citizens or of worshiping a multiplicity of gods because we worship God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not three gods, but one God who exists in three persons from eternity past. But we're slandered. You know, they were also accused of being cannibals because of communion in which we symbolically ate of Jesus' body and drank of his blood. were slandered and in the middle of that kind of persecution Jesus reminds them he is the first and the last who died and rose and he reminds them I see your situation and he is commending them for their faith in spite of it and in addition to Jesus commendation in verse 
9, we see his command in verse 10, and it's in two parts. The first one is, don't give in to fear. By the way, is that a good reminder? If you've lost your job, if you're on the run, if you're being hunted by everybody around you, what's the, what's the most natural reaction in that circumstance? Fear. And Jesus says, don't give in to fear. It's easy to let our fears overwhelm our trust in God and His Word and His promises to us in it. He says, don't be afraid. And He tells them the, the suffering they're about to face will be severe and it will be intense, but it will be short-lived. Some of them will go to prison. Uh, it is a test and it's a hard one. The only time I've ever been in prison was as a guest. I went as a chaplain down to Peoria County Jail back when they had the visitor room with the classic, like you see in the movies where you have the glass on one side and phones. Right? They don't do that now. Now they kind of Skype you in from the lobby, right? where you have a video screen that you look at, and they are looking at you on a video screen from the other side. But back then, they had this the glass, and you had to go through, you had to go through like the TSA type inspection, and you had to be frisk, and they take your, make you take your shoes off, and your belt off, and all this kind of thing, right? And I'm standing, uh, they open this door, and it, you know, whoop, big concrete filled steel door, whoop, you know, and it opens up, step forward, you hear the voice come over the intercom, and then you go in, and that door goes, boom, behind you. And you hear that electronic magnetic lock. And it locks. And you stand there in front of another door, and it swings open. You walk through, carrying your shoes. Boom! It bangs behind you. And you have this moment of clarity right then. It says, the only way I'm getting out of here is if they let me out. Right? It was as close to being in jail as I ever want to be. And if you knew if you, that you were going to prison for your faith in Jesus, would that put fear in your heart? Yeah. And Jesus says, this is a test. It's a hard one. You're going to go through it. It's going to last ten days. And the second part of Jesus' command is this. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. You know what the test of genuine faith is? That you're faithful to the end. That you're still out there hitting it, following Jesus all the way to the end. I've been privileged here to do the funerals of some great saints. Amen? I have buried people that it was hard to bury because we mourn for them, because we love them. But in another sense, it was easy to write the message. I didn't have to sit in, the, in the, my office and kind of write in the third person and go, when a person has come to know Christ, because I don't know whether this person has or not, where I get to instead to stand up and say, remember this person's life 
Remember how they prayed for people. Remember the people they shared the gospel with. Remember their love for Jesus and His Word and how they walked with Him faithfully for 50 and 60 and 70 and 80 years. Remember that? Their faith was proved genuine all the way to the end. And Jesus is telling them, remember to be faithful all the way to the end because that's how you can tell who the genuine article is. That when you die on your lips is a prayer, into thy hands I commit my spirit. You're looking for the Savior. And Jesus says, if you endure to the end, I will give you the crown of life. What's the crown of life? It's a poetic way of speaking about eternal life with Jesus. By the way, Jesus is the centerpiece of heaven. He is the big deal. He is what we're all waiting for. You know, I saw a movie that came out a few years ago called What Dreams May Come. And it's kind of exciting because, you know, like the guy's dog is there. Right? But in another sense, it's such a lame version you get to heaven and you're excited because your dog is there? I mean, like, I love my dog and she's very affectionate, right? But I want to see God face to face. I want to see God face to face. I want to walk with Him face to face who has walked with me through every trial and trouble and joy of my life. I want to stand and weep as I see that nail prints in his hands and feet and see the wound of the spear in his side and praise God for the fact that he laid his life down for me. I want to do that. If my dog is there, that'll be gravy. Right? But Jesus is the big deal. And he says, if you endure to the end, I will give you the crown of life. I will enable you to walk with me forever. I will enable you to walk with me forever. Look at verse 11. This is the second section of this, of this, uh, of this section of Scripture. It says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is addressed to anyone who is hearing the Word of God. He says, make sure you hear not just what it says, but what it says to you. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is not a word for every person, in other words. This is a word for every person who has put his or her trust in Jesus Christ. They are the ones, by the way, who overcome. Every one of these letters has a promise addressed to those who overcome. How do we overcome? Through faith in Jesus. He says the one, in other words, this is a poetic way of speaking about those who have genuine faith in Jesus that endures to the end. How, what will we get out of that? One of the things we will get is this. That you will not be hurt by the second death. 
You know what the second death is? It's terrifying. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. It's called the lake of fire. And Jesus is telling them this. He's giving them this reminder and this promise for this very specific reason. That some of these people are going to die. They're going to go down swinging for Jesus Christ, His gospel, His kingdom, and His cause. And they're going to die as a result. But He says, remember this. You are going to die the first time. But you're not going to die the second. And is that a promise that matters a whole lot? Yes. Jesus said it this way, Do not fear those who can kill the body and after that can do no more. Fear him who can cast both body and soul into hell. And so if you're going to... uh, Pick, pick a side, in other words. Pick the one of the, the man who is ultimate judge. Not the one who has temporary authority. Because you will eventually stand before he who is ultimate judge. And it matters a lot on which side of him you stand. Whether you are a sheep or a goat. Whether you are a child of God or he says to you, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And Jesus is telling them, persevere, hang in there. This is going to be a tough test. It's going to be hard. And some of you are going to suffer the ultimate penalty, but you're not going to suffer the ultimate penalty. You're just going to suffer the ultimate penalty of this life. And there's another one. You'll get the crown of life and the second death will never touch you. It will never touch you. This is the flip side of the good news, in other words. That there is a heaven and there is a hell and if you believe in Jesus, you are not going there. For certain, you're not going there. And it is a great joy to know that. To know that for certain, that you are not going to be judged. That instead you're going to be welcomed. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Come, enjoy thy master's happiness. Is a whole lot better word than depart from me, worker of iniquity. Into the eternal fire. I know which one I'd rather hear. Don't you? And Jesus is reminding them of this because they need the encouragement. You're going to suffer now, but you won't suffer later. It's going to be hard now, but it's going to be easy later. And it's going to be easy and joyful for a lot longer. Then it's going to be hard. Let me share with you a story here as we close. This past Halloween was the 502nd anniversary of the day that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany and touched off the Reformation that recovered the biblical gospel. 
And within just a few years, it would spread like wildfire through the, through the new invention that was then the hotness all over Europe, the printing press. It would get distributed all over across the continent and get over to England where it would take deep root in two guys named Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. They were both bishops in the, uh, in the church at that time, which was Roman Catholic. And they would become convinced that the Roman church taught false doctrine, and then they became passionate evangelists for the biblical gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And for several years after their conversions, their new faith posed no difficulties because right around this time, King Henry VIII also decided he needed to get a few more wives, and he left the Roman Catholic Church. And so there was a zone of safety created for those who believed in Christ and faith in him alone. Uh, Hugh Latimer vigorously spread the gospel among the lower classes, among not the nobility, but the, the, the business people and the poor people. And as he preached it, it spread and took deep roots. Ridley was a brilliant scholar. He memorized the entire New Testament in Greek. And he joined Archbishop Thomas Cramner in reforming the English church. Bringing it into line with biblical teaching. But their ministries ended abruptly with the death of Henry's son, King Edward VI. And the ascension of another monarch, Queen Mary I. A.K.A. Bloody Mary. She ascended to the English throne and she immediately imprisoned these two guys for 18 months in the Tower of London. They were permitted no books except for a New Testament, which they took turns quoting and memorizing with each other. On October 16, 1555, they were led out to a spot in the road near Oxford's Balliol College and they were tied together to a wooden stake and it is said that Ridley walked to the stake and kissed it and then said to his friend be of good heart brother for God will either soothe the fury of the flame or else strengthen us to abide it as bundles of sticks were piled up around them and a fire kindled Latimer said be of good comfort master Ridley and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Now if you know your church history, you know these guys are encouraging each other with allusions to another martyr, a man from the second century A.D., a man who happened to be the senior pastor of this church, the church of Smyrna man named Polycarp and they're quoting him to each other as they're about to suffer the same fate and you know what happened both these men burned to death but it was largely due to these men that the biblical gospel took root in England and from there was spread by a group of people called the Puritans some of whom you may remember from when you were in elementary school and you dressed up in a 
high pointed hat and buckle shoes became known as the pilgrims. These guys were the spiritual descendants of Ridley and Latimer. And from what became the United States of America and from the renewal of biblical faith in England was given birth the World Missions Movement in the 1800s. And the gospel spread around the world. And it was largely due to Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley and their being burned to death at Oxford College. Most of us will likely never face that kind of persecution. I doubt there's much enthusiasm even in the wilder corners of the internet for literally burning Christians to death at the stake. But slander? That hasn't happened to you yet as a believer. You just haven't been a believer very long. <laughs> Your day of being called a narrow-minded bigot, promoting a misogynistic, anti-LGBT, uh, hateful religion is probably right around the corner. So be of good cheer. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, it is possible you'll be fired for sharing the gospel. It is possible, maybe, there'll come a day when we will face imprisonment. We're disseminating what will be called hate speech. That there is one way into God's presence, and it is through Jesus Christ and Him alone. And you must repent of sin. Those laws have already come to Britain and to Canada I don't know for certain that they will come here. But here's what I do know for sure. If they do, Jesus is worth it. Jesus Christ is worth it. Whatever laws get passed do not affect who is first and the last. Whatever laws get passed do not change the fact that He is the one who died and rose and who, if we die will also raise us from the dead. And the second death will still not touch us because we will have received instead the crown of life. Amen. Jesus is worth it. Endure to the end. Let's pray. Father, I pray that everyone here who is studying Your Word, who is hearing what the Spirit of God says to the churches, would endure to the end and receive the crown of life because Jesus indeed is worth it. He is the big deal of heaven. He is the big deal of all creation. He is meant to be the big deal of our lives. That He is to put, be put in such a primary position that everything else doesn't even come in third place. Father, we pray that that would be our testimony of ourselves and our, the testimony of this church, that this is a place full of people who love Jesus to the end, no matter how high the cost gets. Father, it would, it would bring me no greater joy as their pastor than to be able to say with pride of all of them, they have genuine faith in Jesus that perseveres to the end. 
and to be able to hear you say of myself, you were faithful to the end. Father, I pray that would be all of our prayer. I pray that would be the reality that we all experience, that none of us would be touched by the second death. Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know what would happen if they stood before you, Father, I pray that today would be the day where they put their trust in Jesus Christ, who alone is first and last, who alone has risen from the dead and is the victor over it. Father, I pray that their only hope would be in you. And we give you praise, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.